Welcome to Traveling Culturati, where we explore cultures and share travel news, travel tips, destinations, and travel chats. Visit TravelingCulturati.com for more information. Well, hey there, fellow Culturati. Javon Harley here, your host and travel pro for Traveling Culturati. Have you joined the Travel Club yet? Well, I hope that you will. You'll be the first to know when we're on the go. You get to be part of some fantastic destinations, group trips, and you get to meet and travel with some awesome people. The website, TravelingCulturati.com. Go ahead and join in the fun. We've got Japan coming up in May. We have Peru coming up in August, and we're planning some other destinations for the rest of 2024, and we're already working on 2025. You know what time it is. It's time for some travel news. Jamaica is speaking out. The Jamaican Prime Minister Andrew Holness and Sandals Resort's international chairman Adam Stewart responds to U.S. State Department's update of its Level 3 travel advisory for Jamaica. The language of the reissued advisory, which did not elevate its threat level, nonetheless painted a dark picture of a country where violent crimes are common and sexual assaults occur frequently, including at all-inclusive resorts. Wholeness seemed genuinely perplexed by both its content and timing. Two weeks before the advisory was released, the Financial Times had written a glowing report about the island, calling it arguably one of the most remarkable and radical but underappreciated turnaround stories in economic history. Not only were economic metrics the envy of developing countries, but Wholeness said serious crime was down by 11% last year. Murders were down by 8%, rapes down 15%. The advisory runs counter to the fact that the general trajectory of crimes, particularly serious crimes, are all heading down across the board, he said. Crime was at a 22-year low. The challenge we face is that everything that is said in the travel advisory runs counter to Jamaica's story of recovery. Jamaica's story of coming to grips with the challenges of being a developing country while acknowledging that its overall murder rate is still considered high, he also asserted that foreigners had little to fear. For the past five years, serious crimes against the three million annual U.S. visitors who came to vacation in Jamaica had held steady at 0.01%, far lower than the serious crime rates in many of the hometowns where visitors lived. This advisory came out of left field homes added, it runs counter to the story of Jamaica in the last five years. It is not supported by the trend in statistics. Holness hadn't done a line-by-line -line comparison in the previous advisory, but the names of villages and Kingston neighborhoods labeled do not travel were not unexpected. The prime minister said the government has invested heavily to ensure visitors are safe. When Sandals Resort's international chairman, Adam Stewart was asked about the warning, that sexual assaults occur frequently at all-inclusive resorts, he was as perplexed by that statement as the prime minister was about other aspects of the report. Stating, in our company, there is zero tolerance for it, he said, and he feels he would know if there were issues with other companies. With international standards across the board and best practices shared among the island's all-inclusives, the challenge we faced is that everything that is said in the travel advisory runs counter to Jamaica's story of recovery. Well, the Bahamas was another set of islands in the hot seat with travel warnings issued by the U.S. Bahamas government official pledge proactive approach after U.S. travel advisories urge increased caution when visiting the islands. The Bahamas government insists it remains a safe and welcoming destination for travelers despite a recent warning issued by the U.S. State Department. Bahamian government officials on December 30th issued a formal reply to the recent U.S. warnings that the islands have seen an increase in violent crimes. The government of the Bahamas is alert 
attentive, and proactive to ensure that the Bahamas remains a safe and welcoming destination. A Level 2 advisory was issued by the U.S. State Department on Friday, January 26. Such an advisory is a recommendation to exercise increased caution when visiting the specific destination. Though the Bahamas had been listed at a Level 2 alert location for more than a year, recent concerns prompted U.S. officials to update the advisory. Violent crimes such as burglaries, armed robberies, and sexual assaults occur in both tourist and non-tourist areas, according to the advisory. Be vigilant when staying at short-term vacation rental properties where private security companies do not have a presence. In its official reply, the Bahamian government pointed out that its Level 2 status has remained unchanged. Cruise ship traffic to the islands, meanwhile, remains unaffected by the advisories. Still, the Bahamian statement does outline a strategy for dealing with the increased attention. Officials say they're implementing a comprehensive approach that will focus on prevention detection prosecution, punishment, and rehabilitation. Las Vegas Airport introduces remote bag drop. Las Vegas's Harry Reid International Airport has introduced remote luggage drop service at its rental car center and Terminal 3 departures. The service will be available during peak hours for passengers on American Airlines, Delta Airlines, JetBlue, Southwest Airlines, and United Airlines. World traffic reached 94% of pre-pandemic levels in 2023. International airline passengers' traffic reached 94.1% of pre-pandemic levels in 2023 and rose 36.9% from 2022. The International Air Transport Association reported and hit 98.2% in the fourth quarter. Growth was especially strong in the Asian market, although recovery in the region still lags, reflecting that Asian governments were late to lift travel restrictions. United and Delta are embracing European rail connections. United Airlines and Delta Airlines have forged partnerships with European rail companies that allow passengers to book seamless onward train travel. The idea has not taken off in the United States, mainly due to the lack of convenient rail connections at airports. And Delta credit card holders are getting new perks. Delta Airlines and American Express are sweetening the perks that come with holding the Delta credit card. Cardholders will receive $200 flight credits and credits to use at restaurants and on rideshare apps. And those with premium cards will also get $2,500 in medallion qualifying dollars that help qualify for elite status. Well, the U.S. Federal Aviation Administration has initially come out in opposition to a proposal to raise the mandatory retirement age of pilots. More research is needed before increasing the retirement age to 67 from 65, the FAA has stated. It is crucial to provide the agency an opportunity to conduct research and determine mitigations, according to FAA Administrator Mike Whitaker. When it comes to raising the pilot retirement age, the FAA has made clear that a scientific and safety analysis must come first. That has not happened, according to Senator Maria Cantwell, the committee chair. Aviation safety is paramount and now is not the time to take a shortcut. The U.S. House in July voted for raising the retirement age. However, it failed to pass the bill in time and has since been extended until next month. Transportation Security Pete Buttigieg told Congress last month that the FAA has no such data to support such increase to the retirement age. He said this would be above the international standard and will have consequences for U.S. air carriers. This means that older pilots would likely not be able to fly many, if not all, international routes due to age limits in other countries. Pilot unions oppose raising the age, but the Regional Airline Association supports it. Its members have arguably been most impacted by pilot shortages. Raising the age would allow retention of more experienced captains, 
who can in turn fly alongside and mentor new first officers, helping to stabilize attrition. Denver Airport opens upgraded security checkpoint. Denver International Airport has opened a new security checkpoint that offers more lanes and technological enhancements to speed travelers through screening. They can use digital IDs and facial recognition, as well as bins for carry-on baggage that replenish themselves. Applications are open for Southwest Airlines Scholarship. Southwest Airlines has begun accepting applications for the 2024 Community Scholarships, which will award $5,000 per year to select students pursuing careers in aviation industry. Southwest also offers a separate scholarship for dependents of employees. American Cruise Lines will be sailing its American Revolution 11-day itineraries round trip out of Washington, D.C. in 2024. The only cruise ship that sails the Potomac into Washington, the American Constitution, will depart from the wharf and sail the Chesapeake Bay, the Potomac, and the York River with calls in the historic parts of Yorktown, Williamsburg, Jamestown, Mount Vernon, Annapolis, and Norfolk. Cruises on the American Revolution itinerary will run in the spring and fall 2024, beginning March 26, and including cherry blossom season. They all include entertainment and enrichment as well as regionally inspired cuisine featuring Maryland's famous blue crabs. Excursions in Washington include guided tours of the Capitol and the Smithsonian Museums as well as the Arlington National Cemetery, the Harriet Tubman Underground Railroad exhibit, Colonial Williamsburg, the Jamestown Settlement, and Virginia Beach, and an authentic sailing on Skipjack through the Blackwater National Wildlife Refuge. Wave season specials include savings up to $1,500 plus complimentary airfare on select spring dates. This is also an option to add a pre-cruise hotel stay at the Four Seasons in D.C. The largest small ship and river cruise operator in the United States, American Cruise Lines, will sail 19 ships in 35 states with more than 50 domestic itineraries. Well, that's all I've got for travel news I'm Javon Harley, the Traveling Culturati. This is Traveling Culturati. We explore cultures and destinations. We share travel news and travel tips to keep you well-informed and prepared for your next travel adventure. So go ahead and up your travel game with Traveling Culturati. Visit TravelingCulturati.com for more information. Welcome back to the Traveling Culturati. I'm your host and travel pro, Javon Harley. Make sure you head on over to the website, TravelingCulturati.com. Connect with me on social media and join the Travel Club. Yes, we are going to some fantastic places, or shall I say fantabulous places. So make sure you join the Travel Club so that you're in the know when we're on the go. And Croatia is one of those places that we're going. Coming up this July 28th through August 6th, celebrating 25 years in business for Advantage International and some of the milestone celebrations. So make sure you head on over to the website and sign up. And now, Javon's Travel Minute. Understanding the difference between foreign transaction fees and currency conversion fees is something important to think about. Foreign transaction fees are predetermined percentage charges by your credit card issuer for making a purchase from a foreign merchant. The fee is clearly stated on your credit card agreement and can range from 0% to 3%. Before you travel or shop on a foreign website, determine what your foreign transaction fee is and whether you hold a card that doesn't have one. Anytime you make a purchase from a foreign merchant, you could find these fees added to your purchase. So how much could you pay? If you make 15 international purchases at $25 each, you would pay $11.25 in foreign transaction fees with a 3% transaction rate. So be aware of the fine print. If your credit card charges 1% to 3% of each purchase in Canadian dollars, for example, whichever is greater, you could end up with a dollar surcharge per $1 bottle of water purchased. If you plan 
An international trip, an extra 3% on taxis, food, and hotels could significantly cut into your budget. So assuming $3,500 in spending, you could pay well over $100 in fees, so you want to choose wisely. You can, however, avoid transaction fees. If your credit card charges a foreign transaction fee, you can exchange money with your bank before you travel. Be aware that carrying large amounts of cash has considerable risks, of course. And you may not have access to the best rate by exchanging money before you leave. Banks and airport exchange services typically charge a commission on currency exchange and may also charge a service fee. There's typically no need to arrive with money in your pocket as you can use an ATM upon arrival. The best way to get cash overseas in local currency is to use an established bank's ATM and pull money out in local currency. Now, on to currency conversion fees. Unfortunately, these fees are not as straightforward. While a foreign transaction fee is always charged by your credit card issuer, a currency conversion fee can be charged by the credit card payment processor or the individual merchant. In most cases, this fee is built into the foreign transaction fee assigned to your credit card. A foreign transaction fee may comprise of a foreign transaction fee and a currency conversion fee. If your credit card offers no foreign transaction fees, the credit card issuer will likely absorb the currency conversion fee as well. Optional currency conversion fees? Well, typically, a purchase at a foreign merchant is made entirely in the local currency. The cardholder authorizes the amount of the purchase in the local currency, and the purchase price is not converted until the payment is processed. When you make a purchase at an international store, you may be asked if you want to convert your purchase to your home currency. This service is provided at the point of sale as a value-added service and allows you to know the converted price at that moment. But here's a little catch-22. It may come at a cost. It may initially sound like a wise thing to avoid these fees and to know what your currency exchange is, but understand that that conversion at the point of sale can sometimes come at an additional fee by the merchant and in addition by your card issuer. And you can also see the difference between the currency conversion and the foreign transaction fee. A better bet is to either download a currency conversion app so you can know how much you're paying in local currency without being charged an additional fee. At the point of purchase, you're asked if you want to purchase in the local currency or your home currency. If you select your home currency, the purchase price will be converted at that point and the exchange rate will be posted on the point of sale. However, almost always there's going to be a significant commission built in. So it's noteworthy that you may not receive the best exchange rate. So avoiding these conversion fees is to purchase in local currency. Always decline the offer to have it immediately converted at the point of sale. This is Javon, and that was your Travel Minute. I am super excited. I don't know if that's the proper word to use because of what I'm about to share with you today. But I'm super excited to have on with me the director for the National Museum and Memorial of Peace and Justice. Chatting with me today is Ms. Duvernay, and she is the Deputy Director of the Museum and Memorial Operations. Hello, Ms. Duvernay, and welcome to Traveling Culturati. Hi, thanks for having me. Well, it is certainly an honor and a pleasure for me. And before we go any further, I want to acknowledge some of your other impressive credentials. You served as chief researcher for the Academy Award and Emmy-nominated documentary 13th. Saw it. Powerful. (laughs) Contributed research to the ESPN documentary on gender equality in sports entitled Venus Versus. And the Henry Louis Gates PBS docuseries Finding Your Roots. It's always on my list. How was it working on those projects? You know, I think working on those projects just brought a lot of clarity to me personally. And it was a thrill. It was an honor. I think it was transformative for me working on 13th because as lead researcher, I got to go through the transcripts of all of the people who were interviewed 
mean, it's pretty much how I landed here at Equal Justice Initiative. Attorney Brian Stevenson is in the documentary, and I was just in awe of him and the work of EJI. And so I knew that after I completed that project, that this is where I want it to be. And it's been really transformative, best decision I ever made, and I absolutely love it. I can only imagine reviewing these documents and discovering them and learning more about them. I can only imagine what that must have been like. So what then led you to the National Memorial of Peace and Justice? Yeah, so just really working on those projects was just like a rebirth of me. And I just thought I wanted to do something every day to serve the legacy of my people. And so because I had met Brian Stevenson through the documentary, I went on to see what they had available. It was nothing, but I said, you know what, I'm going to shoot my shot anyway. So I sent a really passionate letter and my resume at the time, this was in 2017, the thought was born. Things were already under construction. But when I met Brian Stevenson, we talked and he told me that we are opening a museum and memorial and we don't have anyone to run operations, something that I had been very well versed in for many years in many different arenas. And so I came on to start and just rev up the operation, get it all up off the ground. I mean, you know, it's a lot. I started with a training class of 20 people, and now we have 100 employees, and that's everything from the museum, the memorial, seeing the 25,000 visitors that we see every month, to managing the employees and the merchandise and the shuttles and the security and all of that. So it's really the most rewarding work I think that I've done. Every day I get to see people transformed in the moment, in the space, and there's nothing more affirming. And so it's just like I always tell people, just it really doesn't feel like work to me. It feels mm-hmm. so natural. It's like I can compare it to when you just don't wake up and say, oh, I've got to be a mother today. Sounds extremely um, fulfilling. It's like I wake up and I don't say I have to be a mother today. I don't wake up and say I have to go to work. I don't even really call it work. This is just what I'm passionate about. So yeah, it's a thrill and a joy. And the visitors that we see and the people who come from all over the world to visit both the museum and the memorial, just to be able to engage with them and get feedback on how it has just transformed their thinking. It's really quite rewarding. What an awesome space to be in. Yes. So tell us a brief history of the idea and making of the memorial and museum. Brian Stevenson moved to Montgomery. He's originally from Delaware, moved well over 30 years ago and started doing death penalty work. EJI is founded in 1989 here in Montgomery, Alabama, and he started doing work representing people in jails and prisons, those on death row, people with harsh sentencing, juveniles with life sentences. And As he started to do that work and EJI started to do that work for many years, he just decided that there was a lot of narrative that needed to be told in order for people to understand some of these systems that are unjust. And so before the museum memorials, about 15 years kind of with those thoughts of how we can start to tell a story. For example, the Legacy Museum, the full name is the Legacy Museum from Enslavement to Mass Incarceration. And so it just kind of chronicled, we start with the transatlantic slave trade, and we go through eras all the way leading to mass incarceration. And it just kind of tells the story of how slavery didn't end, it just evolved. So that's kind of how it was born. We opened in April of 2018, we opened both of the sites. And then interestingly enough, during the pandemic, you know, we were sold out most of the time. The outdoor space is the memorial, right? So you can see more people. Our museum was 10,000 square feet. We were sold out most of the time. The lines were going around the block. And so in the pandemic, we kind of had some downtime and decided that we were going to expand the museum. So we got a place down the street from the original museum, and we expanded that to five times as big. And so now it's just become like the second wind of the museum. We were able to add so much more content, including an art gallery, which is really exciting. And so this is kind of like the second life of the museum. And obviously the National Memorial has a lot of draw, but just really excited about where it's evolved since 2018 when we opened. And we're in a really, really exciting place. There's one thing you said that I think is so important and maybe one of the most important things when we think about the abolishment of slavery is that It didn't end there because so many times today, that is the pushback that you get when injustices are talked about and experienced. It's 
slavery ended 400 years ago, get over it. <laughs> and it ended. But this type of story, this part of the history is why it's so important that this part of the history is told. Because, yes, slavery was abolished, but it wasn't a light switch. <laughs> and so yeah. there, was, there was a lot that evolved and transformed after that, that we really have to understand. So thank you for saying that. You talked about the memorial and the museum. And what is the difference between the two as far as what history is told? So the museum, again, is just kind of going through and it is really important, right? Because it didn't just end. And even when it did, it's showing all of the residual effects and how it was a domino effect that's leading us up to mass incarceration today. The museum tells a narrative. We think of really a lot of it as first person narrative and we go through different eras. So we go through the transatlantic slave trade and then we go through the lynching era, segregation era, mass incarceration era. So you're walking through in chronological order and you're being told a story starting with a transatlantic slave trade. And so it's really powerful. When most people visit, that's how we design it to be, is that the thought is that you would visit the museum first. And in the old museum, it used to take two hours to get through. Now, people really should allot for a minimum of four hours in the museum space. We find that people who plan trips and they don't allot for that much time feel really kind of cheated out of really getting what they need because it does take a lot of time to go through. There's everything from art and theaters that we have that have lots of content in it, kiosks, things are interactive. So it does take a good bit of time. Once people leave the museum, usually they break for lunch and then they'll go to the memorial. The memorial is specific to honoring over 4,000 racial terror lynching victims in this country. It sits on six acres of land kind of overlooking downtown Montgomery. And we have over 800 quartine steel monuments, each representing a county where people were lynched. And so that experience is more like an hour, hour and a half. We also have sculpture there and art as well. We have a beautiful, very stunning piece by Kwame Akotambanfo, Hank Willis Thomas, Dana King, and we even have a new section of the memorial for people who had already been in 2018. We introduced a new section in 2022 of Bradley Cadet. So there's now a new part of the memorial that honors people in communities who participate in our community remembrance project. And that's where EJI is working with communities all over the country who have a lynching that has been in their county. And we work with those communities to put up markers and to remember those victims. And so now there's a spot dedicated to those people who have done that work and volunteered in their local communities. So it's really a lot to see. And it's in a place that is so historic. A lot of people asked us why we didn't put the memorial to the National Memorial or the museum in D.C. We feel it's really, really important that people visit Montgomery. We got a lot of questions about why we didn't have virtual during the pandemic. There is something powerful about being in Montgomery for this reckoning, right? There's so much history that happened here. Our EJI office sits on Commerce Street where enslaved people were trafficked and auctioned off at the fountain a block away. And so you feel the power of the space and the place when you're here. And that's why we think it's really important for people to take the pilgrimage, essentially, to visit these very important cultural spaces. I'm glad you mentioned the location because it was one of the questions that I was going to ask you. And I'm originally from Washington, D.C., and we have the National Museum of African American History and Culture there. But I think it's important to have memorials and museums across the United States because it was a country-wide history that we're talking about. So yes. I actually like the fact that it's in Montgomery or in a space that so we don't consolidate all of this history That's right. in one place. I want to talk about this one quote that you have on the site. More than 4,400 African-American men, women, and children were hanged, burned alive, shot, drowned, and beaten to death by white mobs between 1877 and 1950. So it may seem like an obvious question, but why was it important to have a memorial and museum to tell this part of American history? 
You know, I think for a long time, it's been forgotten and people feel uncomfortable talking about it. I can tell you from my personal experience, being in the space is transformative. It is an honor. It is honoring the lives of people whose names we never knew. There are some monuments hanging in the memorial that have the date. EJI has done a lot of extensive research. Still no names. And I know that we haven't captured it all, but so many people fled the South because they were terrorized by the racial inequity and terror that persist here. And so I think that it's so important to honor the lives of these people. I have witnessed family members come, full families come and see the name of their loved one. And it's honoring them in a way that then they may not have been able to be honored. So it's a deep privilege and honor. You can really feel the power in the space. And we thought it was important to not only honor the lives of the people who were lost, but also just to remind people of the history. This is not Black history. This is American history. And it's important that it's not concealed or hidden. It is to be shared so that we can understand where we've come from and how we can never let it happen again. So I think, you know, that's kind of the reason we think that it's important to highlight and honor these victims of racial terror lynching. And you can't heal what you don't talk about because suppressing it or ignoring it doesn't make it go away. You have to confront it and you have to deal with the emotions behind it. I remember when South Africa ended apartheid, they did something that I thought was very cathartic for the country, which was the Truth and Reconciliation Act, to say, let's confront, let's talk about what happened. Let's even confront those who did these things to us as they're still living, they're still here, and not bury that. And I think for America, this memorial and museum helps us do that. Long overdue, but certainly (laughs) (laughs) helps us do that. Now, you mentioned earlier about the Community Remembrance Project, but I understand there's also a sculpture. Now there are 50 marker monuments. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so EJI has worked really diligently with communities who are committed to basically having the truth and reconciliation within their own counties. And so, you know, usually it's a coalition of people that come together from the county And we work with them. It's not just we want the monument. We work with them to really do the work and have the hard conversations. And so oftentimes after someone has done that work, then we're able to go. We erect a marker in the community. We usually have a ceremony around it and someone from EJI can come out. And so there's a lot of work to be done. And that's part of kind of like our community engagement is the Community Remembrance Project. In addition to that, we also have communities and people from all over the country who have collected jars of soil from lynching sites. There's a big display of the soil collection in the Legacy Museum, but we've worked with people all around the country who we basically identify where the site is, and people, volunteers go out, they collect the soil, and then they bring it back to Montgomery and we've been able to display it in our museum. And you can find out more about any of our projects and initiatives, including the Community Remembrance Project, online at eji.org. Also fairly new is the Legacy Plaza. Tell us a bit about that. The Legacy Plaza is so beautiful. We recently opened that last year. And the reason why we opened it is because we just had an enormous amount of people coming, large school groups, hundreds by bus. And while we do have a restaurant nearby in the museum and other places to convene, it wasn't a lot of space to just sit out. And we started to find that that was really a need. So we opened the Legacy Plaza. It's just a beautiful place to just kind of reflect and converse about what you just saw, the memorial or the museum, so people can go out there. It's a beautiful park-like area. We do have a couple of sculptures there, and we also have a big marquee that kind of gives some biographies on people that you've seen in the museum. So it's a place where people can just gather, talk, eat. We just added a little legacy cafe there, so people can 
grab a bite to eat, sit out, talk, and just kind of reflect on the time that they've spent with us. I'm happy to hear about that because it sounds like such a place where you need that time for reflection. You need that time to kind of sit with your feelings, sit with what you've just experienced and be surrounded in the open space. So that's another thing to have that memorial in this open space that you're not confined because it is a very powerful and strong experience I could imagine that that, oh, yes. that people have and reaction to it. Yeah. Anything else new on the horizon? Well, you know, we're constantly adding pieces to our art gallery, which is again inside of the museum. And yeah, we're still hard at work. We're working on some projects now that we hope to announce soon. I think that anybody coming, especially this year, next year, we're constantly working on some things. But I think for the art gallery, we've got some incredible pieces there that we constantly add. And we just add an incredible piece by Allison Saar. And so we're adding to that space and changing things out so that it's fresh and new on exhibit for folks. And yeah, we're still acquiring lots of art, both for public displays. So some will be outdoors. We're working on some new pieces for the plaza as well. And so, yeah, we're, we're constantly having things. We try to have these convenings where we invite school groups and people out to just engage with the community, visit the site. So we're constantly working on that. So I always tell people, just keep a lookout on the website. We've got the EJI website, and that'll lead you to the Museum and Memorial website. And as we have new things, we're sure to announce it there. I did want to talk more about EJI, what the acronym stands for and what the organization is about as well. EJI stands for Equal Justice Initiative, and we have a lot of initiatives. So we're still very, very heavily involved in our legal work and have many attorneys who are still representing vulnerable people incarcerated in jails and prisons. And we also just expanded our work, right? So for the cultural space, we have the museum, we have the memorial, we have our community remembrance project that we discussed. We've also introduced other places where we can help other initiatives. So we just started a anti-hunger initiative where we're just helping communities in Alabama here locally just supplement their grocery bills and their needs, which actually already started our health initiative where we hired doctors and nurses and we are starting a clinic where we are seeing and screening people specifically now in the first stage coming out of jails and prisons, giving them their health screenings making sure they have their proper prescriptions, things like that. And then we also just started something called Fines and Fees, where we're trying to help people who are essentially bound because they don't have the money and the resources to pay for some of their fines and some of their fees. And so Ecojust Initiatives is doing a lot of things. That's why we're really, really busy. But again, all of the work is so incredibly rewarding, and it is because of people who believe in EJI, Equal Just Initiative, and the integrity of our mission and all that we're doing, all of our supporters, is why we can continue to do the work. Fantastic. What is the website? The website is eji.org. And when you go on the website, you can find more about all of our initiatives. You can find out more about the staff. And then there's a link there that will lead you to the Museum Memorial website. A separate website is Museum and Memorial at EJI.org. But EJI.org is the simplest way and it can lead you to all the other websites and the Museum Memorial website. That's where you can go get tickets and find out about our hours and all of that. Fantastic. Well, I just want to say to EJ, a resounding thank you for everything that you do and for the National Memorial and Museum. Thank you for that. And thank you for your support of it. We hope that everyone visits. It's a place where everyone should come visit. And thanks for having me on. It's been an honor to talk to you. And we hope to see everybody in Montgomery. Okay, just sidebar. Duvernay, is there any relation? To Ava Duvernay? (laughs) I'm joking. (laughs) I'm joking. I think the last name is so unique that people usually catch on really quickly. Yes, Ava is my big sister. I am the baby sister, but there's five of us. And yes, Ava is my big sister. She's off working hard, making a project. But yeah, one of my best friends, both of my sisters and my brothers. But yes, that's how I got involved in working on 13th because she wrote and directed that as well. 
wonderful family, by the oh, way. Thank you. <laughs> and just big thanks to all of it. 13th Henry Louis Gates PBS yes. series and certainly for the National Memorial of Peace and Justice. Thank you so much for joining me oh, today. What thank, an honor. Thank and a you pleasure. so much. Thank you so much for having me. When we come back, I'll have the culture report. This is Traveling Culturati. We explore cultures and destinations. We share travel news and travel tips to keep you well informed and prepared for your next travel adventure. So go ahead and up your travel game with Traveling Culturati. Visit TravelingCulturati.com for more information. Welcome back to the Traveling Culturati. I'm your host and travel pro, Javon Harley. Make sure you head on over to the website. It's TravelingCulturati.com. And while you're there, follow us on social media. And don't forget to join that travel club because we travel the world and we want to make sure that you come with. We also want to hear about your experiences. So share those with us on social media as well. Culture is forever changing and reflecting what's happening in the society and with its people. It can be born of arts, music, food, and sometimes politics and strife. This is the Culture Report. And I am excited to talk about music, one of my favorite pastimes, and also a museum that I recently visited, the National Museum of African American Music. Joining me today is Candace Jones, Director of Marketing and Communication for the National Museum of African American Music. Hello, Candace, and welcome to Traveling Culturati. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Well, what a pleasure to have you on. I can tell you how much fun I had at the museum. I recorded a little something, something. <laughs> <laughs> One of the fun aspects of the museum. So give us a little background with the museum. How long has it been there? And of course, that process of making it happen. Yes. So the museum has actually only been open two years. We just had our two-year anniversary on MLK Day this year. So the museum itself was a long time coming, about a good, I would say, 14, 15 years in the making before we actually opened our doors. There was initially talks of founding a museum that was about African-American history and culture. And after years of trying to figure out where the location was going to be, having those different talks with political leaders in Nashville and things of that nature, the conversation shifted to really kind of niching down and focusing on African-American contributions to music. And so the National Museum of African-American Music was born. We opened two years ago. And the museum is absolutely incredible. We encompass over 400 years of music history within our walls. So it's really something to see. It's extremely interactive. It is not your typical museum. So it's definitely something you have to experience firsthand. And I tell you, it's a lot of fun, but it's a lot of history with music as well. But you mentioned one thing, vetting the location. Why and how did you come to Nashville? So Nashville was an obvious choice, maybe not to the public, but was an obvious choice because this is Music City. And what a lot of people don't realize is that Music City wasn't named Music City because of country music. That name actually happened as a result of the popularity of the Fisk Jubilee Singers. So that's very much tied to Black music history. And so it was kind of a no-brainer to have this museum in such a music-centric place as Nashville. Yes, I think that is a piece of history that we all kind of forget. And you know, what happens sometimes is that through evolution of information, I'll phrase it that way. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> we come to know things as they weren't, or we get a different idea of why things are the way they are. And Absolutely. one of the things that I love, and I don't want to give too much away because it's such a great exploration when you get there, is I, too, was able to sing with the Jubilee. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so that, I think that's probably one of the greatest parts of the museum. And it's actually my favorite parts of the museum are the interactive portions. Being able to come and make your own jazz beat, make your own hip hop beat, sing with Bobby Jones and the Nashville Super Choir and save that video as a keepsake on your bracelet 
to take home with you or getting into the booth and recording your own rap song, things of that nature that you can always keep with you as keepsakes and memories of actually being able to experience this museum. And what was the idea of having such an interactive museum? We wanted people when they come in to get a sense of the history of the music and all of the contributions that African-Americans have made to music and the American soundtrack. But we also wanted the experience to be interactive so that you can really kind of immerse yourself in the experience. I think it's one thing to walk through a museum and be able to read certain things or see certain images, but being able to immerse yourself into the music really adds to the overall experience. And being able to take those moments and those portions home with you, the things that you created while you were here, just makes that kind of memory more lasting. Yes. And, you know, one aspect of music that I won't say we discounted, but I am just in amazement that hip hop is celebrating 50 years. (laughs) It is incredible because I just remember Rapper's Delight. It sends you back and you reminisce about your own experiences. But to think, I'm like, really? Has that been 50 years? How are you honoring that at the museum? So we have an amazing exhibit right now. It's a year-long exhibit. It's called This Is Hip Hop. It's in our feature gallery. And so what we really did is we wanted to take a different approach to kind of celebrating hip hop music and hip hop culture. And so the way that we're showcasing that is really to kind of revisit iconic hip hop artists and hip hop moments and culture through the lens of documentarians. So these amazing photographers and videographers and illustrators that have documented hip hop as it's evolved throughout the decades. And so when you come into the feature gallery inside the museum, you can see this amazing photography right now. We feature the photography of Raymond Boyd, who is a very renowned photographer out of Chicago that has documented a lot of really iconic hip hop artists as they've toured throughout the Midwest. And so you can see his photography in the feature gallery. We will be refreshing the exhibit every quarter. So next quarter, we're actually featuring Tracy Bartlow, who is an amazing photographer who captured a lot of hip hop culture and hip hop artists on the West Coast. Then we'll also move to the East Coast in the third quarter, and then we'll close out things in the fourth quarter with the South. And are there any other special exhibits that we need to know about, especially any that are going to be there temporarily? So actually our permanent gallery, The Message, is our hip hop gallery in the museum. And so that's up all year long and then also every year. So you can see that at any time. And that really kind of talks about the history of hip hop, as well as the iconic artists that really shaped the art form and the genre into what it is today. We also have a lot of hip hop programming that we'll be doing throughout the year in terms of events. We have the opening reception for the next phase of our This Is Hip Hop exhibit that will be happening on April 6th. And we'll have Tracy Bartlow actually here in person to do a Q&A about her photography. And then we'll also have a little bit of a party (laughs) to celebrate just us refreshing that exhibit and being able to see that amazing work. Fantastic. And as this is Women's History Month, let's talk about women in music and how the museum honors and celebrate women in music. Yes, absolutely. So of course, Women's History Month, we have quite a few events going on to kind of celebrate. We actually have the We Sound Crazy podcast is doing a live recording with Latasha Scott from Escape. And that's happening here at the museum in the Roots Theater on March 17th. We also have a Women of Soul event, which is an amazing music event that's going to happen in our Roots Theater on March 19th. You'll be able to really kind of see some amazing soul singers come and perform on our stage. And then we also have Heartbeat Saturdays, which is something that we do every Saturday where we kind of turn the lobby of the museum into a party during the day (laughs) on Saturdays. And we'll have an amazing female DJ that's going to be spinning during the day on Saturday on March 25th. That sounds like a ton of fun. Yes, it's absolutely amazing. And the energy is so high when you come in and you hear that music. 
I believe I read that the museum has presented a diverse curriculum to elementary, junior high, and high school students with music. Tell me about that. Yes. So we partner with organizations like School of Rock to make sure that we are not only sewing into the music community, but also making sure that we are keeping music at the forefront of education. So we have that as well. And then we also have our own programs that we have that we hold within the museum where different schools bring their classes to kind of receive certain instructions. So sometimes we have musicians come in, they may be teaching about a particular instrument or a particular style of music. We recently had a dance company come in and teach about African dance to students and actually demonstrate and have them participate in African dance and learn all the facets of that as well. I think that's so important to connect with a curriculum and to connect with schools because I know that some courses have been holding on by a thread or fighting to stay alive in school systems. And music is one of them. Yes. And so we try to supplement where we can because we know that sometimes the schools don't always have the funding that they need to keep those programs alive. Absolutely. So what are some of the near future things that we can expect from the museum? Oh, yeah, absolutely. So we have a lot going on. (laughs) We are entering our busy season So as you come, you'll be able to see a lot of things going on in the museum. As I said, our opening reception for This Is Hip Hop is April 6th. Soon we'll be doing a screening of the new Little Richard documentary that's happening in the month of April as well. We are always having an event going on at the museum. So whether your interest is blues or jazz or gospel or R&B or hip hop, you will find something that is just for you. We also have the choir room coming to the museum on March 27th, which is an amazing, an amazing event where people from all over the area come and fill our lobby. And I'm talking hundreds of people. The last event, there was 400 people came to the lobby and sang gospel music. And you could just hear it even out on the street. It was absolutely amazing. Well, I am certainly looking forward to a return visit. What's the website for more information? Absolutely. You can visit us at www.namam.org. Great. And that, of course, is the acronym for National Museum of African American Music. Well, Candace, thank you so much for joining me today. I'm just thinking back to my visit there and how much fun I had. And believe it or not, I got my husband to do a Fuji's rap with me. And I did, of course, the Lauren Hill part. Love that. That is awesome. I hope you guys save that to your RFID bracelet so you can have it forever because that sounds amazing. (laughs) (laughs) We had a ton of fun. And of course, we took it way too seriously. But (laughs) (laughs) awesome. Well, thank you so much for having me. My pleasure. Ladies and gentlemen, this is Traveling Culturati. We explore cultures and destinations. We share travel news and travel tips to keep you well-informed and prepared for your next travel adventure. So go ahead and up your travel game with Traveling Culturati. Visit TravelingCulturati.com for more information. Ladies and